Good morning. Welcome to Church on Mill. If you are visiting with us this morning, I want to extend to you uh, especially warm welcome. We are thrilled to have you. Uh, if you are a child, fifth grade or younger, um, you are now dismissed to Gospel Project. Gospel Project is an age-appropriate Bible teaching time. My name is Andy Clare. Uh, my wife, Caroline, and I have been members at Church on Mill for the past three years. I'm currently in seminary, um, and then our plans for the future are, when we both finish our degrees, to hopefully plant or revitalize churches in the Midwest and farm communities. Pastor Chuck continues to labor for our church on sabbatical, so please pray for Chuck and his family during this time. Our passage this morning will be 1 Samuel 23 and 24. If you don't already have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the chair in front of you, a blue. The page number on that Bible will be 140 that will be on. You're welcome to take that Bible home with you. If you're just joining us this morning, we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is a narrative that takes place in Israel before the time of Jesus. 1 Samuel describes how Israel came to have a king and how the purpose of the king of Israel was to point to a better king, a heavenly king who would come to Israel in the future. One theme in our passage today is justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. Last week, the title of the sermon was A Tale of Two Kings. Saul is an oppressive king with an oppressive kingdom. He slaughters the innocent. David is a merciful king. He offers refuge for the needy. The two themes, the theme of justice and mercy, are explored in a novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. In this novel, Dickens describes the evil of France and England before the French Revolution, before and during the French Revolution. The poor are abused by the rich without mercy. Once the revolution starts, the poor begin to mercilessly slaughter and butcher the upper class like they were cattle. In his book, Dickens symbolizes the horror of that time by describing the famous invention, the guillotine. The guillotine was the famous execution tool of the French Revolution. Dickens sums up the essence of the guillotine in this line. All the devouring and insatiate monsters imagined since imagination could record itself are fused in the one realization, guillotine. Crush humanity out of shape once more under similar hammers and it will twist itself into the same tortured forms. For Dickens, the guillotine symbolizes the potential for evil within ourselves and within society. Oppression and evil, once it is rooted in the heart, twists itself 
into tortured forms. Today, our text will follow David through oppression. Already in exile, we will read that David is still on the run from Saul. Last week, David slaughtered an entire town of priests. Next week, we'll learn that Saul's own wife has been given to another man. This week, we learn that David's men distrust his leadership. David's countrymen, men from his own tribe, repeatedly betray him. And Saul is relentless in pursuing David, seeking to kill him. David eventually finds himself together with Saul in a cave. In light of the oppression that David has faced at the hand of Saul, what does David do? Does David become a guillotine of revenge? What we discover is that in the face of oppression and despair, David is a merciful man. And indeed, as we read 1 Samuel 23 and 24, we will see an unusual and vivid display of mercy by David towards Saul. David spares the life of his oppressor. David is a merciful man. But the question we must pose to ourselves is not merely the fact that David is merciful, but how has this merciful nature come about? Why is David merciful? Is David merely treating others as he wants to be treated? He attended Sunday school and he knows the golden rule. Is he being nice? Or has something profound happened? Something eternal and supernatural in his character that's taken place. How does the Bible hold mercy and justice in tension? The main idea of our passage today, and I think the answer to this question, is this. God's king puts his trust in God for deliverance and justice while in exile. God's king puts his trust in God for deliverance and justice while in exile. Why is this significant? Saul, the king chosen by the people, trusts in himself for deliverance and justice. In fact, we saw in our last chapter that he embodies the spirit of oppression. He slaughters a whole town out of fear and revenge. But David, David doesn't respond to the oppression with rebellion. David resists the path of the guillotine. Rather, he puts his trust in God for deliverance and justice, even while in exile. Our time together will be a theological sandwich this morning. We will have two small texts on the outside of our passage that will act as buns. Just like buns hold the entire sandwich together, 
Our two small passages will hold our passage together. The heart of our sandwich, chapters 23 and 24, is a genre called historical narrative. Historical narrative is sometimes hard to interpret because it often seems to be simply describing historical events as they happened. David runs. Saul chases. David runs again. Saul chases again. What's the meaning of this? Scripture doesn't simply record history. Scripture points us to God. Every word of Scripture. We find that the buns of our theological sandwich tell us what we ought to believe as a result of this narrative in 1 Samuel 23 and 24. Scripture will interpret Scripture. Our first bun this morning will be Hannah's prayer. If you've been with us through our whole series, you will recount that Chuck often refers back to Hannah's prayer. The reason for this is that Hannah's prayer gives us the theological blueprint for the entire book of 1 Samuel. As David begins his rise and Saul begins his demise, Hannah's prayer informs us about what is happening from a divine perspective. In short, Hannah's prayer tells us that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Our second bun will be Psalm 57. David wrote Psalm 57 at the same time as our narrative takes place. Psalm 57 will confirm to us that trust in God and mercy are interconnected. My goal this morning will to be to persuade you of this truth. God's king puts his trust in God for deliverance and justice while in exile. The only reason that David can be merciful is because he has unwavering confidence in the providence of God to deliver him and to give him justice. We will read just the end of Hannah's prayer this morning. Hannah prays this. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We are given a divine perspective. The faithful one whom God guards can be thought of in a broad sense as any faithful person to God. But in our context, we realize in the book of 1 Samuel that the whole book, and this prayer especially, is not about everyone broadly, but it's about one person, and it's about David. It's about the anointed one of the Lord. Furthermore, our text today will show in plain terms that God's adversary, spoken of in this prayer, is King Saul. 
we can know from this prayer that God will judge Saul, but he'll give strength to David. The king of God's choosing will not try to deliver himself. Rather, he will trust in God for deliverance and justice. The king of God's choosing will know that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones. For not by might shall a man prevail. God will give strength to his king. This trust in God's provision is the core, the source of David's character in our passage. Having examined our first theological bun, let us now look to the heart of our passage. I will start at chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, <clears throat> Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David hears about a Philistine raid happening on a town in Judah. Judah, the tribe which David is from, needs deliverance. What does David do? David, who is the great commander of Israel's armies, David, a renowned war, war hero, what will he do? David seeks the Lord. It is not by might that man shall prevail. David knows this. And even when his men doubt him, David trusts in the Lord. And through the deliverance of the Lord, David delivers Keilah. Through this short introduction, we see a king whose heart trusts in the Lord for deliverance. But the story of Keilah isn't done. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And David said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? 
Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Here David is in Judah, his own tribe. He just rescued Keilah by his own hand from the Philistines. David comes to know that Saul was on the way. David again seeks the Lord. He calls to Abiathar and asks him to use the ephod. The ephod is a kind of priestly apron which the priests wore over their garments and it had sacred lots inside, kind of like dice. And these lots gave yes and no answers to questions from, uh, that you'd pose to God. Having summoned the ephod, the Lord answers, telling David that Saul will come down and that the citizens of Keilah the people that he just rescued and who are from his own tribe, the people of Keilah will give him up to Saul. The reality of David's exile is beginning to take shape. David has become a man with no place to lie his head. Though seeking to do the Lord's will, he is despised. He is rejected by men. He's acquainted with grief. He's afflicted. The very ones he seeks to save turn against him. David's life begins to look much like the life of a king who is to come long after him. David's life gives us a hint at what Jesus' life would be like. And what does David do? David entrusts his soul to the God who could deliver him from death and who could bring justice to his cause. Notice the difference between Saul and David here. Saul assumes David seeks. Saul assumes things about God. God has given him into my hand. No, he hasn't. David seeks. Hear, O Lord, answer my prayer. But why does Saul not seek God? I think verse 8 is an indicator. As Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah, Saul trusts in his own hand of strength. It says, And Saul summoned all the people to go to war. Saul's trusting in his own might. He's trusting in the number of people. Saul doesn't know the Bible. And he doesn't know God. Not by might 
shall a man prevail. Psalm 53 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Psalm 10 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Church, compare the actions of David to the actions of Saul. Does Saul seek God? No. But does Saul believe in God? Certainly. Belief that does not lead to seeking profits no one. How many of us sit in church week after week, but we fail to seek God? How many of us have stopped looking at pornography because it was ruining our marriage, but we did not in turn seek God? How many of us will look for a a spiritual experience that makes us feel at peace, but we're not seeking God himself? It is not enough to dabble in spirituality and religion and morality. We must dedicate ourselves to seek that eternal, infinite goodness from which all creation and reality has come. Saul assumes things about God. David seeks God. David continues his exile in the wilderness of Ziph, which is in southern Judah. And although David is in exile and on the run, God does not leave him without encouragement or support. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. In the midst of flight and fear, Jonathan, the very son of God, comes to David to strengthen his hand in God. God, Jonathan verbally confirms all that is to come true. David, you will be king over Israel. God, through Jonathan, is affirming his word to David. God will exalt the horn of his anointed. He will guard the feet of his faithful one. Saul shall not find him out. Jonathan appears to confirm the word of God to his friend. Isn't that the most important thing a friend could do? In moments of suffering, in darkness of the soul, in a deep doubt, a friend would come and confirm God's word to you. Friend, 
God's word is true. His promises are sure. Husbands, are you confirming God's word to your wife? Do you wash her daily in the promises of God's truths? Wives, do you affirm and confirm God's word to your husbands? Friends, are you confirming God's word to each other? There is nothing more precious, no obligation to one another that we could do more rightly than to confirm God's word. God is faithful. God will keep his promises. Jonathan and David is a friendship built on a covenantal commitment to one another. A covenantal commitment involves an oath and it involves a pledge to seek others' self-interest above your own. This text is a beautiful display of God's character and his commitment to his covenant. God is a faithful friend who keeps his promises. However, our text immediately contrasts this covenantal faithfulness with covenantal treachery. Reading on, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh and on the hills of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all his lurking places where he hides and come back to me with more sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. If one aspect of making a covenant is to consider the benefits of the other member above your own, then here it appears that Saul and the Ziphites use and manipulate each other for their own ends. The Ziphites, who no doubt knew the story of Nob by now, of Saul killing an entire town, clearly want to be on Saul's good side. And Saul wants to use the Ziphites to find out and lead him to David. In the absence of trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God, all relationships become a means of self-serving to some end, just like Saul and the Ziphites. The ironies of Saul are multiple in this scene. Saul blesses the Ziphites by the Lord. 
May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me, says Saul. The irony here is twofold. The first is that he would bless by the name of the Lord after exterminating all the priests of the Lord. The second is that he would be grateful for receiving compassion after giving no compassion. Saul is like an abusive husband who continually makes himself out to be the victim when time and time again he is the tyrant and the killer. But isn't this what sin does? Doesn't sin blind us to our own reality? We come and bless God with our lips on Sunday morning, but we curse our coworkers with these same lips? We give generously to, to the church and to missions, but we fail to provide for our parents in a nursing home? We seek better grades through hard work at school, but we neglect to seek God. Sin is always blinding, making us fools who do not know their own blindness. We try to live a double reality, fooling ourselves, but no one else. For Saul, there is no genuine fear of God. God is a good luck charm by which he can bless and swear by. Saul gives the pretense of religion but lacks any substance of truth. He is a king just like the kings around him. Saul is a contrast to David who continues to trust God for deliverance and salvation even while in exile. God's king trusts God for deliverance and justice. Saul, given hope by the help offered by men, again goes out to seek for David. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Saul, blinded in sin, not seeking God, again attempts to capture David. But God again delivers David from the hand of Saul. Saul is rushing around one side of the mountain. David and his men are rushing away around the other side of the mountain. And at the last minute, by God's gracious providence, a messenger reaches Saul. The Philistines have raided the land. Return home. David, 
who continues to put his trust in God for deliverance and justice while in exile is again delivered. Saul and David have one final encounter in our passage. This is one of the most famous encounters of Saul and David. It takes up the entirety of chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. He goes to the bathroom. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Can you tell the suspense is building? And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. But did, but did God say that? Do David's men know the Bible? They don't. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to the, his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. And literally right there it says, there is no wrong or evil in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. 
Do you hear in that sentence how that is courtroom language? That is the language that you will use when you're before a judge? What is it like if you're on trial and the God of the universe is pleading your cause? God will plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Through the mysterious guidance of God's providence, David and Saul come face to face. David comes to a moment of decision. Will I kill Saul? His men urge him, Kill Saul. But David does not. David preserves Saul's life. Here, more than at any other point in our chapter, David reveals his deep trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God. God, not the arm of man, will deliver David and bring about justice. David need not raise his hand. He need only wait for the Lord. David knows his Bible. David knows the promises of God in Hannah's prayer. In Hannah's prayer we read, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. David imports some of the exact words from Hannah's prayer to defend himself against Saul. It brings to mind when Jesus is tempted by Satan. What words does Jesus use? He uses scripture. The king of God's choosing knows his Bible. David says this. He says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you but my hand shall not be against you. And he says again in, in, in verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge 
and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David entrusts himself to God for deliverance and justice. We've now worked through the heart of our theological sandwich. If we wanted to finish our theological sandwich, our final bun, so to speak, we would turn to the psalm that David wrote while he was in the cave with Saul. This will be a small bun, but worthy of our sandwich. When David was in the cave with Saul, he wrote these lines. You can find them in Psalm 57, verse 1. Psalm 57, verse 1. The psalm written when David was in the cave with Saul. And he opens with this sentence. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. The mercy of God is found in the refuge of God. This small sentence is a cause and effect sentence. Some of the most theologically loaded sentences in Scripture are cause and effect. What's the effect? The effect is experiencing the mercy of God. Be merciful to me, O God. What's the cause? What's the reason? For, because, in you, my soul finds refuge. Isn't it fitting that the merciful man finds mercy in God? The reason David can hope in the goodness of God is because his soul finds refuge in God. God's king trusts God for deliverance and salvation, even while in exile. But Saul says an important thing about David that we need to review. Our translation in verse 19, it, it reads, For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? As I worked through my translation, I brought this out differently. And I think it is helpful to grasp who David is. If you do this very woodenly in translating, you say, who sends his enemy in the path of goodness? Who sends his enemy in the path of goodness? Who would bless their enemy? What kind of person would love their enemy? Who would spare their enemy? Who would save their enemy? What kind of person would die for their enemy? If you've been here the past few weeks, you know that David serves as a picture of what God's true king would look like. 
the prophets who came after David and who were waiting for that true king, they knew that the exile of David would be relived by that true king. One of these prophets said this about the true king. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Did this prophet look into the future and see this suffering king? Or did he look to what God had done in the past and knew that God would bring this about one final time? The New Testament authors also understood this. Jesus was the fulfillment of the suffering king. Here's one passage about Jesus from the New Testament. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, when he was alone in a cave, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Not by might shall a man prevail. Friend, if you are not a Christian this morning, you need to know that right now, you are trusting in yourself and not in God. We've seen throughout our passage this morning that the path of self-reliance is the path of ruin and judgment. We can know without a doubt that as long as we continue to trust ourselves and not God, we remain the adversary or the enemy of God. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that King Jesus, he wants, he desires to send his enemies in the path of goodness. If you will receive it, Jesus has come to save his enemies. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God. The good news this morning is that the Bible is not calling us to try harder, to be better, to give a better effort. No. God is telling us today to find refuge in God by trusting in the king who trusted God perfectly. Only Jesus has trusted God perfectly. Only Jesus can bring us into a perfect relationship with God and bring us the perfect deliverance and justice of God. Apart from the refuge of Christ is only judgment to come. And our best efforts will condemn us eternally. Our only hope is that Christ trusted God perfectly while he was in exile. And it is through being in Christ's kingdom, by faith in his death and resurrection, that we can come to be co-heirs to the same grace and refuge 
that belongs to Christ. Let me pray for us to end. God, thank you that you would work through the weak things of this world to shame the strong things. Thank you that you have revealed salvation comes through exile and specifically through the exile of Jesus. Thank you that we can cease our self-effort and trust in the one who trusted you completely. I pray that as we contemplate David and his life, our heart would be spurred to meditate on the perfection and beauty of the true king, Jesus. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul finds refuge. Amen.